So we're continuing our, our way through the, the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 5, um, five of six chapters. And you'll, you'll remember that this is a letter that was written by a guy named Paul to Christians uh, that were living about 15 years after the events of Christ's life, death, death and resurrection. So these are people who would have had the opportunity to, to know other people who had known Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul had actually planted this church um, in a similar way that this is a church plant, uh, th that these were church plants in this region of Galatia that's modern-day Turkey. And, of course, as, as Paul then went on to, to plant other churches around the, the Roman Empire, he had gotten word that there were major problems in, in these churches. And so this letter is really his attempt to, to call them back and remind them of the central message of Christianity called the gospel. And so he's talked about the authority of the gospel, where does it come from, what is the central message of Christianity. And today we are still beginning and continuing our way through the section where he's starting to, to try to get really practical and say, what difference does the, the central message of Christianity, the good news, mean for how we actually live and love others and, and serve those around us. So if you have a, a Bible, turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. And, and also there's a, a pew Bible near you if, if you don't have a Bible with you. And you can turn to page 975 in that Bible. So again, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we study your, your, your word today, I pray that the, the words in my mouth, that the, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you'll, you'll notice that Paul has been talking a lot about freedom, and especially if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, this seems to be the, th the theme of basically every message that we've had, at least connected to freedom. And we, we see it again here in verse 13. If you look there again, Paul says that it is, he's, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And he's not talking about some kind of political freedom he, or freedom as we might think about the American dream or, or something like that. But what he's saying is that we have been freed from endless rules and ceremonies to try to, 
to earn God's favor, that, that the, the message of Christianity, the gospel, sets us free. And that's what he meant back in verse 1 of chapter 5 as well. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fir firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So again, we're, we've been set free, so don't go back to... To slavery, And then he even says it in the, the last verse of our passage today, in verse 18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, that you have been set free from the, from the law, from, from rules, from ceremonies as our way of, of working up to God. Now, this, this idea of, of freedom that we have in Christ, that we're saved by what he's done for us rather than, than what we do, uh, this message has always been crucified between two thieves. And I, I didn't make up that term. There, there was a guy named Tertullian uh, back in around 200 AD, and, and that was his language of the, these two thieves that, that are always trying to steal the, the freedom of the gospel. So, so the one thief is the, the thief of, of legalism. And that's what I've already mentioned. It, it's saying the way that you're going to get to God is through what you do, through rules, through ceremonies, through through being a, a good person. And that is actually the primary thing that the book of Galatians is arguing against. It's arguing against legalism, that first thief, because Paul doesn't want that to, to rob the, the freedom of the Galatians. But at the same time, Paul doesn't want the Galatians just to say, oh good, we're free from legalism, and then just feel like they can run out into the arms of another thief who's just as dangerous, which is called license. And license is, is basically the mindset that says, oh, well, so you're saying that I'm saved not by what I do, but what Jesus has done for me, it's by grace. And so I can just do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I, I can treat other people around me like dirt. And that's okay because I'm going to go to heaven anyway because Jesus died for my sins. And so Paul here, he's concerned, and he's trying to show that that, that is not true, that that mindset license will actually lead back to slavery just as much as, as legalism will. And so he's, he's showing us today, in this passage, next week, in the weeks to come, that the message of Christianity, that, that free grace, it isn't legalism, but also isn't license. But actually, we are freed from the law in order to love and to serve others as we walk through the Holy Spirit. So we'll, we'll walk through this together then from our, from our passage. So I would encourage you just to, to keep your Bible open to Galatians 5. We'll, we'll refer to the, the text um, as we move through this. So, th so the first thing that we notice here is that Paul is saying that freedom in Christ, Christian freedom, isn't a license to just do whatever we want. And that's really what he's saying in verse 13. Look again there in your Bible. He says that you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so he's, he's front confronting that objection to the Christian message up front, that objection to free grace. Because remember that, that free grace is, is what I've been saying, that, that it's the idea that we don't go out and buy our salvation in some way through all sorts of means. We don't buy it 
through our good deeds, through our ceremonies, through our religious observance. But actually, Christ purchased our salvation for us. He bought it on our behalf. And he did that through his life, death, and resurrection. And rather than going out and working for it, we actually receive it. And so you can think of the idea of free grace as more like a, a Christmas present that you get. You don't buy it. You don't work for it. You receive it rather than your paycheck that you get at the end of the month because you worked for it. And, but what Paul's saying here is that that freedom that we have of receiving this gift, it shouldn't open us to say, well, I guess now I can do what I want. I'm going to give an opportunity for the flesh, and I'm going to run from, from legalism into license. And, and so uh, really here, um, what Paul is, is t- talking about um, is, is the fact that this, this freedom that we have uh, in Christ is actually not something that is going to lead to the, to the flesh. Now, sometimes we get confused on what Paul is talking about when he says flesh, that we think, well, what is it to, to give an opportunity for the flesh? Um, that we think, well, is the Bible saying here that somehow the, the body is bad? Um, and, well, the Bible actually is very clear that the body is not bad. Um, and that's where Christianity is. It was actually very different from some of the religions at that time in the, in the first century, that that the Bible says that the body is good, that we were created in the image of God, um, that, our, that we are, reflect his, his glory, um, and that even his plan for fallen humanity is not that we'll just be disembodied spirits someday in heaven, but the, the hope of Christianity is actually an embodied hope, that we'll have resurrection bodies like Christ's resurrection bodies. So what, what he's not talking about here then by saying opportunity for the flesh is that the body is bad, but really what, what he's getting at is that from our human nature that we have a propensity to rebel against God, that we have inherited this sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it's, and it's these inner desires that, that motivate our wrong actions, that motivate the things that we do that are opposed to God. But you might say then, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to give an opportunity to the flesh? Well, Paul actually, he tells us in, in verse 15. Look there in your Bible. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this is what it looks like to give opportunity to the flesh, that we bite and devour one another and are consumed by one another. And, and this reminds me a lot of the, the chickens that we had when I was young growing up in, in Colorado. And, and so the, the chicken flock would sometimes, they would start pecking at each other and then they would peck each other's backs and then all the feathers would get pecked off and then they would keep pecking and then they would get sores on their backs and then disgustingly that would make them want to peck even more. And, and literally, I. I mean, the chickens would have pecked themselves to death unless you intervene, and, and there's steps that you can take to keep them from pecking each other. But left to their own devices, they would literally peck each other to death, that they would bite and consume each other. And of course, human beings aren't quite like chickens in, in that regard, but in terms of our, our behavior, that is exactly what we do, that we're, we're so prone as we, as we give opportunity to the flesh to want to pick at each other, to 
bite each other, to devour each other, to consume each other. And so you may see this kind of behavior in, in your workplace, where there's people criticize, they pick, they, they gossip, they compete. And it, and it doesn't lead to a, a great work environment, but it's exactly what Paul says, that watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Or you may see this in, in families where the, the husband picks at the, the wife and the wife picks at the husband and the, the siblings pick at each other. And then before you know it, the, the picking turns into biting and then the biting turns into devouring. And then it's what Paul says, that, that watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But then, sadly, this is also something that we see in the church sometimes, that there can be this picking and, and biting and, and devouring in the church as we give opportunity to, to the flesh, that people look say, well, this person isn't volunteering enough, or this person isn't nice, or this person's difficult to work with, or this person's not doing this or that. And, and the church can follow that, that same kind of pattern where the the, the picking turns into biting, the biting turns into devouring, and then it ends in, in death. And this is actually described really well by a pastor named Phil Riken, who pastored a church in Philadelphia for many years to the Presbyterian. Uh, and it's in his commentary actually on our passage. He says, when the Galatians traded liberty for license, so there's your, your two thieves, li when they traded liberty for license, it turned out to be a license to kill. Conflict in the church is a kind of spiritual suicide. Sin is always self-destructive, and the sin of divisiveness inevitably leads to the destruction of the church. It means the death of Christian witness and fellowship. And I think that, that is exactly what, what Paul is saying in verse 15, that watch out that you're not consumed by one another, that if you're picking at somebody else, biting others that eventually you're going to be bitten back and it's going to lead to death and it's it's really it's it's the same thing as nuclear war right that it's it's mutually assured destruction that that nobody wins in the end and i think that often we think of the the picking and the biting and giving opportunity to the flesh as as a kind of freedom where we say well i'm, I'm just standing up for my rights or where we say, well, I'm just going to give that person what they, they deserve. I'm just going to finally let, let my mind you know, come out and express myself, or I'm just so fed up. And it's, it's the same thing as the, the Frozen song, right? We just say, just let it go, right? I'm not holding back anymore. Um, but the problem is, is that kind of attitude of picking and devouring does not bring freedom because it leads to being consumed. And it's not rock and science to say that being consumed does not mean freedom. <laughs> that being consumed is actually the, the end of freedom. And so if we, if we use the freedom that we have in Christ to, to move back into this, this kind of, of slavery, of, of biting and, and consuming one another, that we're missing the very purpose of why Jesus came, that, that he wasn't bitten and devoured and consumed on the cross for us, so that we can turn and bite and devour and consume others, that he went to the cross and paid the penalty for sin so that actually we can be free. And Paul tells us what we are free to do, not to give opportunity for the flesh, but we are free to, 
to love. Look at verse 13 again. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so it's, you can see really the, the irony of what Paul's saying here, that, that what is freedom? What does it look like to live the Christian life of freedom? Well, it's not just getting our way, but it's actually serving others to become a servant of those around us through love. Because when you are able to, to love your coworker, to serve him or her through, through love, that you're not giving up freedom, but in many ways you're expressing freedom because you're not a, a slave to the, to the desire to, to always be right or the, the desire to always seem successful or, or the desire to try to have you, the best life you can have right now, that you are freed from that desire so that you can actually love and serve those around you. And, and to, to illustrate this, I, I came across this, this article this past week about this woman who, 37, and had a spinal stroke, and it left her uh, unable to move from the waist down. But then her husband left her because she was now impaired, and she said, after suffering a stroke, I, I not only had to deal with the paralysis, but I had to deal with losing my partner of 14 years. Now, the husband may have thought, I'm expressing my freedom here because I, I didn't choose to have a life where I'm going to be restricted like this, where my desires are going to be restricted. And so he, he maybe thought, I'm going to go out and express my, my desire to, to live life the way that I want. But in reality, by giving opportunity for the flesh, that he was actually expressing slavery. Uh, he was expressing slavery to this desire of the flesh for freedom and autonomy that is opposed to service and love. And he's the, the complete opposite of, a, of another man named B.B. Warfield. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a, a theologian who lived around the, the turn of the century and uh, taught at Princeton Seminary for many years, and he's known for a really great book on the authority and inspiration of the Bible. But what people don't know, or a lot of people don't know, is that in 1880, sorry, 1876, at age of 25, he, he got married, and he and his wife went on a honeymoon to Germany, and on that trip, his wife was struck by lightning and led to her becoming completely paralyzed. And so she, she spent the, let the next, actually their entire marriage, 39 years, completely paralyzed. And so he spent his entire working life caring for his wife. And they said that he really couldn't even be away from her for more than two hours. Um, and so he would teach and then go back to her. And that's how he lived for, for 39 years. And so we, we would look at that, and we would say, well, he wasn't free. That, yeah, he was a su successful theologian, but maybe he didn't live up to the potential or have the impact that he could have if he would have been able to, to travel or to invest his time and energy in different ways, or he was, he was robbed of the experiences that he could have had in his marriage if he had been, been free. But really, what, what he was able to do in his marriage was express what Paul is talking about here is, serving others through love, that, that he was able to not live by the desires of the flesh, 
but the desires of the Spirit because of the reservoir of, of freedom and life that he had in Christ. And this is also how, how you and I are called to live, and it's, it's difficult, that uh, this is the, the life of sacrifice. But even though it's difficult, it is beautiful, that it, it is the way of, of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. But also it's beautiful because as we love and serve others, we're actually fulfilling what the law of God is about because it is fulfilled in love. And this is what, what Paul says in verse 14. Look there in your, in your Bible. He says that we should serve others through love for because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the law of God is summarized by the Ten Commandments. But then the Ten Commandments are summarized by the idea of love, that the, the law of God tells us, shows to us what it looks like to love others. So you can even take the, the Ten Commandments, that the first four tell us what it looks like to love God. That if we, if we love God, we're not going to worship other things in the, in the place of God. If we love God, we're going to worship him as he has revealed himself to be and not worship him through images. That if we love God, we're not going to dishonor his name, but we're going to love and respect his name. We're going to set aside time for, for worship and to, to praise him. And then the other six commandments tell us then, what does it look like to love others practically? That that we'll honor our, our father and mother, we'll seek to, we'll um, not murder or even hate or dishonor life around us created in God's image, that we won't objectify people sexually or commit adultery, that we won't take what belongs to us, that we will love truth and seek not to, to lie but be people of, of truth, that we will be people who give thanks for what God has given us, but don't covet the, the things around us. And so you can see there that if somebody were to do all of those things perfectly, that it would, it would be love. That's what it is to love God and, and to love others, that it fulfills love. But notice that it's not us, though, that fulfill love. That if we were saved by our works, if legalism was right, then we would work our entire life and then try to fulfill the law at the very end by having been perfectly loving towards God and towards others our entire life. But of course, if we're honest, we all know that we're not perfectly loving <laughs> towards God and towards others our, our whole life. And this is why the, the gospel is such good news, that, that it's not us who fulfills the law by loving others perfectly, but Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that he perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved others. And so as we repent and we trust in him, our failure to love as we ought to love is counted to him on the cross, and he bears the penalty of that. And then his perfect record of love is counted to us. And so what we get is we get clothed in a love that is not our own when we trust in Jesus, that what we inherit is the fulfillment of the law, which then gives us the strength and, and the power to begin loving others. And you might say, well, how does that work out? Well, you can, you can think about it kind of like an email inbox. I don't know how many emails you get, but probably most of us get more emails than we would like. And imagine sitting down to your, your email box one night and you have thousands of emails and you're gonna have to reply to them all and they're all, they require a lot of thought and it's detailed stuff, but it's really boring. 
But then you sit down and you find out, wow, somebody else has actually gone through and replied to all of my emails and my inbox is completely empty. And, and, but what they responded were the perfect things that they said exactly what you should have said and probably better than you would have ever said it. And so when you then have this, this empty inbox, you could say, well, I guess I'm going to go watch TV. Uh, or you could say, wow, this is exciting that I have all of these other projects, these other to-do lists that I've, I want to do, um, but I've been just stuck in this cycle of just reactively responding to these uh, messages I'm getting at, but now I can actually begin crossing things off of my list. And that's the way it is when Christ fulfills the law for us, when he perfectly loves like we could never love, that we get this, this clean slate, that then we can say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm free from trying to, to love in order to get something, in order to get access to heaven or to, for God to accept me, but I can actually begin to love and serve those around me freely as a response to his love for me. And this was stated really well by a pastor in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. So wrestling with the role of the law, he says, what is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in tear over Christians and, and says, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it is kept in its place. And I think that that, that says so well what, what Paul is saying here about the love fulfilling the law, that what we have is this pattern of love in the law, and, and that before it was this rod that drove us and just exposed all the ways we're not loving others perfectly. But because of what Christ has done for us, it becomes a road, not a rod, but a road which we are called to, to walk upon through faith. And that's what it means to be free in Christ. But then you'll notice that Paul shows us then how we walk down this road of love. So as we're on this path of love, how do we walk? Look at, at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we've already talked about what gratifying the desires of the flesh looks like, that that's the biting and the, the devouring that's going to lead to us being consumed. And Paul's saying this incredible comforting thing, that he said that there is a way to escape this, <laughs> that if we walk by the Spirit, we're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he gives the reason for that in verse 17. He says, For, because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, even I was, was using that, that language a moment ago of that the, the gospel doesn't mean we can do whatever we, we want. But Paul actually states it in the opposite way, that it's actually the flesh that keeps us from doing what we want to do. That, that in Christ, what we desire is to love and to serve. But then, then there's this war within us, that, that, that our, our, our heart 
turns into a, a battlefield with um, opposing sides. And he's saying that, the, that they're at war with one another, but yet if we walk with the Spirit, that we have a way forward. And, and you can think about this kind of like somebody who starts experimenting with drugs, right? That somebody says, I'm free. I, I can, I can, I'm free to take this drug. It's not going to hurt anything. I'm going to stay in control of myself and, and my life. But then they, they soon find out that what they thought was freedom actually turns into an enslaving desire of the flesh, that they are addicted to the euphoria and can't escape as much as they might try. But then think about this person has a child and begins to say, you know, I really want to be there for this child. I want to be a good parent. And so then suddenly there's these two warring, opposing desires at work in the person. There's the desire for the drug that is powerful, and there's the desire to be a good parent. And that these is a waging war that one is going to win and one is going to lose, and that, that they can't coexist very long in the same person. And so the, the person decides, okay, I'm going to begin the conflict. And that's actually where the conflict really begins, because now they're having to fight something where they weren't before. And so they try to quit but it doesn't work. They go back to the same behavior. They try again, but this time they check themselves into rehab and put people around them who actually help them do the things that they want to do, but that they also don't want to do. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the way it is to, for us to walk the Christian life, that we're, we're called to do the things we want to do, which we also don't want to do. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is the one who, who comes alongside of us and, and who first gives us even the, the desire because in and of ourselves, we're addicted to sin. That's what sin is. It's a form of addiction where we, we desire this and we can't go away from it. We desire what's opposed to God. And like somebody who's wrapped in addiction, we can't just make a decision. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm just going to now desire something else. But the Spirit comes, brings us from death to life, and, and we begin to see our sin for what it is. And and where it's leading, that it's leading to death. And we begin to see the, the holiness and the glory of God, and we begin to see the beauty of Christ and the fullness of what he has done for us on the cross. And we begin to, to desire to have uh, what not to gratify the flesh, but to live by the Spirit, and to have our lives be something that's going to point and glorify God rather than being about ourselves. And it's, it is at that moment that the battle begins, <laughs> that the conflict within us starts. And so that really casts light on what Paul's saying back in, in verse 16, where he says that, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because if we try to wage this war and enter this battlefield by our own strength, that we are going to fail each and every time. But if we enter it with the strength of the Spirit, that we actually can can walk and have a way through the battlefield because actually the victory is assured through Christ. And you may have even seen the, the movie Wonder Woman. Um, well, there's, there's a scene where the, it's World War I and there's the no man's land between the two armies with the trenches and, and she leads the army up out of the trenches across. And she has a shield that is all the bullets and bombs are hitting the shield and everyone's behind her and able to cross something that they could never cross 
by their own strength. And that's, that's the way it is for us as we walk with the Spirit, that the, He guides us, that He leads the way, that if, if we try to venture off on our own, we can't do it, but we can actually walk in the way of love through the strength that He provides for us, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. And so, just as we, as we wrap up, I just want to leave you with just two closing thoughts to think about this, this week as you reflect on these things. So the, the first is that we need to accept the inner battle between the flesh and the spirit as a normal part of the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I look at my heart and, and we see the desires of the flesh waging war against the spirit and we think, who, who am I? <laughs> What's wrong with me? I, I must be sort of a sub-Christian. But what, what Paul's saying is, like, no, that is actually what the, the, the Christian life is like, that the Christian life is a, is a battlefield, and that, that the victory is assured through Christ, but that it's, it's not going to be an easy journey. But then the, the second takeaway, though, is really the other side of that coin, yeah, we accept the conflict is a normal part of the Christian life, but we don't accept the desires of the flesh as a normal part of who we are. That sometimes we, we begin to think, well, I've struggled with this for so long, I think this is just who I am. That I'm just always going to struggle with this. I'm just going to accept these desires or this behavior. But what Paul's saying is that the desires of the flesh are more like a cancer. That, yeah, it's there. And it used to be a cancer that was growing, but through Christ and the Spirit, it's a cancer in remission. That, yeah, it's, it's in you, but yet it's not you. And that you are called to, to wage war against it through the Spirit and through the strength that he provides. And, and, and as that war is waged, the, the outcome of it is so beautiful that it's not a war like other wars that we see, but it, it's the war to, to love others, the war to, to serve, the war to, to put on the whole armor of God. And I'll leave you with this from Ephesians 6. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this, this battle, and he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your foot, having put on the readiness given to the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, we, which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication to the end that we may persevere, making supplication for all the saints. So this is, is freedom. This is what it looks like not to give an opportunity for the flesh. We're not freed to, to live how we want but we're free to live how we want, <laughs> to, to, to walk in the way of love and service through the Holy Spirit. And it is really that, that love, that, that work of God for us, that fulfillment of the law that Christ did that we see here, that as we fail to, to live up to, to God's standard, 
Um, we should have been the ones broken, the ones consumed. That's what we justly would have deserved. But, but Christ took what we deserve in our place. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed. And he didn't do it so we can go and, and bite and, and devour, but he did it so that we can then walk in the, the way of, of love, being guided by the Spirit, leading the way through the battle.